falters nor mistakes, that his counsels may ordain, blessed ending makes. The text for the sermon this day is taken from these words from John 2. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That is the text. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Before we get to that text, which... In our English, modern, 21st century America, sounds a little awkward. We have, we're going to start by looking at a particular word at the very end of this gospel lesson. And that is the word, first. The Greek word that is normally used to translate as first is the Greek word, protos. You hear this in English words such as prototype. The prototype of a a product is the first type. It's It's the first round, the first attempt, and usually it has a whole bunch of glitches, and it doesn't usually work quite as well as the final product. The Greek word, however, that is used here is not protos. The Greek word that John uses is arche, which we hear in another English word, archetype. The archetype is the type or the standard by what all other products are are, or all other things are judged. So some people might call Michael Jordan the archetype of great basketball players or something of that nature, because he is the one that everyone is judged against. Arche, by John using that Greek word, he is letting you know that this miracle, the turning of water into wine, is the miracle that all other miracles are judged against. He is calling it the chief of, God, of Jesus' miracles. Not including his incarnation and his, his own resurrection. Think about that. Jesus did a lot of incredible things. He said to a storm to be quiet. And it was. He walked on water. He made the blind to see. The deaf to hear, the mute to speak, the lame were made to walk. He cleansed the leper. He fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He said to a dead man, Lazarus, come out, and he did. And yet John, who records Lazarus' resurrection, says... That turning water into wine 
was a greater miracle than raising Lazarus from the dead. Or a more significant one. That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Now, on a, med- on a physical standpoint, there actually is some reason for this. They've actually done a scientific study to study what it would take to turn water into wine. And the amount of water that Jesus turned into wine, which is about 180 gallons of, water, of wine, in order to turn 180 gallons of water into wine through scientific process, it is possible. But in order to do that, it will require an explosion, an atomic explosion equivalent of Hiroshima. In other words, if you'll have your, your wine, but you also have a very large crater. So, advice, don't try it. Because you're not going to be able to enjoy the wine. So, I mean, on that level, it's pretty incredible. But the other reason is, but there is a bigger thing going on here. And it's expressed when Jesus responds to his mother. And it's a statement that, again, our English comes up short. And our English drops off two key words. And see, in the time of Jesus, when it came to marriages, to weddings, it was the duty of the bridegroom and the bridegroom's family to provide wine for everybody. Enough wine for every person. And to run out of wine during a wedding would be a great disgrace, a great embarrassment. Which is why Jesus says to her, and this is what the Greek says, it says, Woman, what does this have to do with me and you? That's the two words that got cut out in our English. And you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not the bridegroom. You are not the bridegroom's mother. This is not our concern. And literally, and then he says, my hour has not yet come. In other words, her hour to be the bridegroom's mother and his hour to be the bridegroom has not yet come. Jesus is pointing forward to something that is going to happen. See, Mary, she's not identified as Mary in John. She's just identified as the mother of Jesus. Appears only twice in all of John's gospel. This is the first time. The other time is in John chapter 19. At verse 25, it says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. 
And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and it held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jumping down to verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. There is an intentional connection between this appearance of Mary and the other appearance. See, in this hour, Jesus says to his mother, Behold your son. In this hour, in the other Gospels, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As it says in Ephesians 5, we heard it, and he's quoting Genesis. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is leaving his mother and his father. And then, if you remember back to Genesis chapter 2, how was Eve created? From most translation says it's from the rib of Adam. But the better translation is from the side of Adam. It is from, it's in the side of Jesus that he receives the spear. And out of it comes water. And if it was up there, blood. See, Jesus' hour, when he was at the wedding at Cana, his hour to be the bridegroom, his hour to leave his father and his mother to be united to his bride had not yet come. But when he hung there on the cross, he left his father and his mother because his hour had come. And he was being united to his bride, the church, which is formed in the water and the word in holy baptism, which is celebrated in the body and the blood in the Lord's Supper. This is even what it says in Ephesians 5. This mystery, the mystery of marriage is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
People ask, what is marriage all about? That is what marriage is about. Marriage is about Jesus being crucified for his bride, the church. And it's about we who are the church. We who grumble, who complain, who come up with excuses as to why we cannot spend time with our groom. We who have all these reasons that we come up with the complain about how things are. We who do not talk, decide that the only place we can talk about our groom is inside these walls. We decide that we can't talk about him outside here. That that's, that is t- that's just for the church. Imagine that if you talked about that with your spouse. Like, oh, I can't talk about my wife outside of the house. I'm sorry, that's inappropriate. I cannot say anything at all about her. Or I can't say anything at all about my husband outside of the house. But that's what we do with Christ, who is our bridegroom. We who have who do not deserve him, nonetheless are presented to him, as it says in Ephesians 5, sanctified, cleansed by the washing of water with the word, presented to him in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That is how we stand before God. That is what marriage is. And by the way, this is the standard that all marriages are judged by. Where the husband is willing to endure that. To have nails driven into his hands and to his feet, to have a crown of thorns placed upon his head, to be flogged and beaten in order that his wife may live. When you men say, I do, that is what you are promising to be willing to do. To be the head of the house, when it says, why submit to your own husbands, Paul is telling the wives that you are to allow your husband to sacrifice himself for you. That is the submission that is being asked. It is not that the husband gets everything he wants. In fact, it means that the husband rarely gets what he wants. Every decision is about what is best for his bride. It means that throughout his marriage, what is the color, what what is it that a bride usually wears on a wedding? A white dress, right? In all the days of his marriage to his wife. 
No matter how bad or she has a really bad hair day or makeup is really bad or maybe her personality isn't so wonderful. He sees her always as that, that bride presented to him in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing holy and without blemish. The tasks of wives is to respect her husband, to not tear him down, to honor him as the head of the house. And by the way, this submission, it gives no excuse for the husband to be abusive. I mean, think about that. If the task of the husband is to, the ultimate task is to sacrifice himself, to protect his wife, to abuse his wife is like a firefighter who starts houses on fire and then puts them out and calls himself a great firefighter. That's nonsense. You're actually, when a, a man is abusive, he is actually going, he is actively taking a role against his job as a husband. He's violating his task. And it is actually, a, it is a good grounds for divorce because in that moment, his love is not for his wife, but for himself. For those who are, will one day look for a spouse or one day will be a groom, the task to them, a good man asks the parents for permission to get married. See that submission, it's a military term, so I want you to see that image. So think of the husband is in the front, the bride is in the back. In military, the point of that is, if somebody is coming at the, the bride with a spear, she has, the, the person has to go through the husband. That's what the submission is. It means allowing the husband to stand in front that whenever danger comes, he takes the full force of the attack that she receives nothing. And behind the bride, the bride is the children. So if you go to a wedding, the practice is the pastor will say, who gives this bride away? And now, nowadays, because we want to be equal, we, go, we give away the, the groom too. But it's much more significant for giving away the bride. The parents are, in essence, who have had their entire task up until that day to care for that daughter. It's saying to that groom, we now entrust her to you giving her away to that specific man is a way, is a part of their protection of her. And when a man does not ask permission to marry and actually even date, although I know sometimes that's not realistic, that is a violation of their role of parents. 
That wedding in Cana seems like such a small miracle. But ultimately, all of this is what it's about. It is about the marriage of Christ to the church. That's why we read it today. Because today the journey to Good Friday begins. For it is in, in the cross, through water and the wine, which is indeed the blood, we are united to our bridegroom. And that, because in case you didn't notice, every husband and wife fail in their marriages, which is why we need that water, why we need that blood, to receive forgiveness for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, keep you in the one true faith and a life everlasting. Amen. At this time, we are, instead of singing Create in Me a Clean Heart, uh, we are going to sing the hymn, The Church's One Foundation, which is 644, which I believe so wonderfully confesses exactly what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm.